Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode 28. Today we speak with Sophia Amanda Mariamne Radcliffe, who is a mystic, a high priestess, and a bishop within the French Gnostic Church. She was also the occult ritual and witchcraft advisor for the recent Hollywood film adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's Color Out of Space. A psychic since childhood, a series of dreams, visions, and mystical experiences led to her 10-year initiatory journey through the sacred sites of France. In 2018, she moved to Montségur, where she founded the Gnostic Church of Our Lady of Love and the Sanctuary of the Magdalene. An expert in the history of the Cathars, French esotericism, cults of prophecy in the Near East, and the role of women in the early church, she has a master's degree in feminist theology and a master's in transpersonal psychology with a focus on psychic ability and consciousness research. As a scholar, her emphasis is on mystical experience, spiritism, ecstasy, prophecy, and theurgy, both today and in the ancient world, the mystery cults of the Near East, and the erotic mysticism of the feminine divine, as expressed through the genuine mystical revelations of the 19th century neo-Gnostic revivalists, such as Jules Doinel. As an artist, her mission is to delete religious taboos against women's bodies and sexuality through the creation of new psychoactive iconography using her own body as a ritual object to illustrate the inherent spirituality which still exists in the sacred spaces of patriarchy. As Bishop Sophia of the Gnostic Church of Our Lady of Love and the Sanctuary of the Magdalene, her emphasis is on theurgy, pilgrimage, prophecy, theosis, thaumaturgy, the Third Age, and the Revelations of the Feminine Divine. Each year, Amanda offers a limited number of places available to those who would like to apprentice for training, initiation, and ordination within the French Gnostic and Esoteric tradition. Before we jump into the episode, we would like to say thank you to our new and to our longtime patrons, We appreciate the support as it really enables us to cover some of the overhead costs associated with the production of the show. We recognize that as a patron, we don't offer multiple tiers of rewards or exclusive content like a members-only section with special members-only interviews. For one, and this is the main reason, we just don't have time to do all that between families, work, research... Our schedules are pretty much booked solid, so what we can offer you is a very sincere thank you. As always, we dedicate this episode to Hermes as well as Asclepius. May any merits accumulated doing this work be extended to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. We want to give a big thanks to Sophia Amanda Mariam Ney Radcliffe for coming on the show. Welcome. Thank you. And we have with us here today, unfortunately, Dominic. <laughs> Thank you. So Amanda, uh, Amanda's done a lot of work with the Gnostic stream, uh, especially al- aligned with the axis of the feminine mysteries and Sophia. Uh, But without speaking for her, I'd like to lead in by letting her speak for herself. So, 
Amanda, could you please <clears throat> tell us a little bit about your origins? What what brought you to this spiritual path? Yeah. Okay. Well, I started out as a mystic. I've been clairvoyant since childhood and come from a long line of clairvoyance. And it seemed like a natural progression, really. I didn't know about Gnosticism when I was a child, but like a lot of people, I was looking for some kind of path that made sense to me. Um, I was raised as a Christian, but then realized quite early on that there were some aspects of Christianity that just didn't sit right. Um, I, I was raised particularly as a Protestant. So in our church, we didn't have any representation of Mary whatsoever. We had no statues. We had no incense. It was very, very basic. And um, and I became friends with a Catholic girl who, who was uh, in, in my neighborhood. And I used to sneak off to the Catholic church and pray to Mary. And I was extremely jealous that they had this image of a feminine deity in a way or divinity and we didn't um and it occurred to me very very early on that something was not right um that there was a disbalance equally i did not relate to this angry jehovah sky god and his brutal commandments and killing and everything else so i knew internally that something was missing in, in Christianity from a very, very young age. Something did not feel right. So that's how it started for me. I started sneaking off to the Catholic Church because I knew something was missing from my own um, religious upbringing. But then later on, I realized that was not correct either because I couldn't condone um, the laws against sex before marriage, laws against homosexuality and abortion and things like that, having come from a liberal family, to have those type of rules just didn't seem didn't seem right either. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And I think that's a I think that's a struggle that a lot of people have who have maybe a inherent spiritual inclination or mystical inclination from an early age and are raised within a um, modern Christian culture, whether that be of a Catholic, uh, Orthodox, or Protestant uh, background, those are the very issues that I think a lot of people end up becoming alienated, not only even from Christianity, but from, unfortunately, spirituality itself. Because mm -hmm. when you're raised within a certain culture, you, of course, identify your your sense of spirituality with that religious culture you were raised within, like Jung talks about. And so what I see today is a massive crisis where many people um, abandon religion and, and this spirituality altogether because of um, the sort of damaging messages and experiences they had within uh, these kinds of environments. Absolutely. And then when we add that to having our own genuine mystical experiences or psychic abilities or mediumship, there is no place for that in the church. Uh, only saints, and even then only verified saints. Otherwise, it's considered to be you know, the work of demons or possession states or 
some kind of negative influence. Um, and I, I, having had a lot of mystical and I would say paranormal experiences, I couldn't accept the idea that, that what I was seeing and experiencing was evil because it didn't correlate entirely with the, the dogma which we had received. As far as it goes for me, I, I've had mystical experiences from an early age for sure, um, interactions with spirits, um, the divine, and unfortunately the opposite as well. And mm. my programming, you know, the upbringing of my programming was primarily raised by uh, people of Catholic descent on both sides of my family. And the interesting thing about that is even when it's your family may not even be particularly religious, for instance, neither of my parents were deeply religious, I would say, although, um, you know, there was a, some participation, although my grandmother still is very Catholic, very mm -hmm. religious. Um, still, it doesn't matter when you're raised within this culture, you unconsciously assimilate a lot of these ideas. And then when you have these experiences, you have to learn to, you have to unlearn a lot of the things you've absorbed in order to mm -hmm. see things with equal vision and clear sight. That's right. So I can completely relate to where you're coming from there because I think that that is kind of an issue. And I think that that's not us, just us even. I mean, look at what Joan of Arc went through. I think, she, you know, she had visionary experiences that were not only, must have been legitimate because the she was able to verify and confirm these things. And yet by the very culture that was willing to verify her visions, she was killed, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's that element of implied violence in conventional Christianity in many ways um, that alienates those of a mystical inclination even further. Absolutely. We're in an age, I think, now where, thank God, we don't have to worry that by saying we're Gnostics, we might be hunted down and beaten or imprisoned or raped. You know what I mean? Yeah, or burned. Or burned. <laughs> Can't forget that one. <laughs> no, a lot were burned here in this part of France. Yeah. But they so, were the Cathars, so that's a slightly different story, but very similar origins, I believe. I was going to say, going back to your origin and your journey, Let's continue mm -hmm. that that thread. So, how did when yeah. and how did you come into contact with Gnosticism and that whole message and ideology? Okay. And then, how did you end up in Montségur eventually? <laughs> yes, that's a long story. <laughs> um, so, it started for me really about ten years ago when I had a very strange dream, and the dream was very symbolic. And I have had precognitive or instructive dreams again since childhood so I knew this was not an ordinary dream I just put it aside because at the time I was trying to have a normal life <laughs> and as we know you know when you kind of called on a certain path that just doesn't happen it's not it's not possible and then a few years later I had another strange dream which led me to the work of a, a particular woman who is a quantum physicist and researcher and artist and gnostic and um, is very into consciousness research and 
um, when I found her, I, I sent her an email and I told her that I'd had this dream. And she asked me if I'd ever found, found out about anyone else through dreams. And I told her, yes, I found out about the work of Nick DeVere. And she, she said, oh, well, not only do I know Nick extremely well, but I built his website. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so we're talking the dream. The first dream was 2009, and then the second one was in 2013. And I just started a master's degree in transpersonal psychology and consciousness research myself. And so she became my mentor, really. Um, And she had done a great deal of research into these ancient European bloodlines who are linked with this particular tradition because she is from one of them herself. So she suggested that I start researching my genealogy, which I did. And of course, we found different correlations and connections. And then through her, I met a man in Texas called Dashiel Johnson, who's an artist. And we were talking about this subject together and he well, I suggested to him, hey, you know, you should research your genealogy. It wouldn't surprise me if we're all related. And and he did. And he, he, when he was doing that, he made contact with a woman here in France, in Paris, who was part of an order who, who again, were interested in these kind of blood mysteries and the idea that, you know, certain abilities pass down through our DNA and can be magnified, amplified, changed, created, recreated, you know, um, through selective unions and also through spiritual practice, of course. Um, And her family, she can trace her family back, you know, a very, very, very long way. Um, And she became very interested in Dashiel told her about me and I was in Paris actually at that time so she became interested in in meeting with me and so that's how I really started on my journey into French esotericism I was living in Paris anyway um, at that moment and she invited me to join her order Um, and it was a a secret order um, closed and only for people who were members of certain bloodline groups, um, but very, very mystical. And the way she recruits recruits people is she sets them tasks. <laughs> so she'll send, like clairvoyantly, she'll send an image or she'll send a, a phrase or word or some kind of clue and see, see whether or not we receive it. And that's how she was trained. And that's how several of the other groups that she's in operate. And then through there, we were given astral travel um, tests and things like that, you know, sent to certain locations, remote viewing, um, different magical practices. And so I liked it because, you know, you can join anything these days and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, as we know, in the new age, there's this idea that, you know, you pay your money, you get your certificate. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have been tested, trained, um, or even can prove that that you have any of these abilities. 
so I, I really liked the way she operated because it was based on proof. It wasn't based, so it wasn't enough just to have, have the bloodline, for example. You had to prove what you could do. And that's what I liked about Nick's work because he said it's not enough just to be a member of one of these families. It's what you do with it that counts. And he said a lot of people have this blood, but, you know, they don't do anything with it or they do horrible things with it. Um, whereas people don't or they don't know that they do, but they are manifesting these abilities. So it's very interesting how it how it happens. It doesn't necessarily flow <laughs> in a straight line. So, yeah. That, sorry? I'm sorry. I was going to say I, I've definitely, uh, I definitely would have to agree with you about that the DNA does pass down not only physical and psychological characteristics, but psychic characteristics. Um, mm. I know that in uh, genetic science, it's believed that the mitochondrial RNA of the mother is what passes down inherited memories. Um, so this, this is in, it's interesting because the science is catching up with some of these ideas and it leads me to contemplate, okay, well, the intersection of matter and spirit then because ultimately spirit is immaterial. Yet at the same time, those who have investigated this do often do find that there is a mysterious relationship between what we inherit ancestrally and the makeup of our spirit. Absolutely. And you do see this reflected in uh, shamanic lineages where it's passed on from, uh, you know, father to son, mother to son, mother to daughter. Mm -hmm. um, and as we speak about bloodlines or you're speaking about bloodlines, I can't help but to think um, Janice and I were very interested in the Holy Blood, Holy Grail book back in the nineties, many many years ago. Um, so I can't help think about that book right now because bloodline was a big part of mm -hmm. that. So where, where do you stand on the whole Merovingian bloodline connection uh, that was brought up in, in that work? Well, it's, it's in, yeah. Sorry. I was going to say, cause it's interesting because I, I do think that there is some truth to some of the connections. While at the same time, I know that certain aspects of their work as has been disproven too, you know, like, um, right, right. Like yeah. the Priory of Sion was said to, was said to have actually ended up being a fraud. But then recently I've seen information from other directions saying, well, that information was deliberate and intentional to mislead people. So it, you know, one way or another, there's at very least a myth connected to this. And to me, Myth is sometimes more real than fact. I agree. I live in the center of the myth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm curious where you stand on it. I believe um, seeing it as a myth or a metaphor, I think is really important, especially for me because of where I am and what I do. If I, if I, <laughs> you know, if I took this whole thing too seriously, um I've seen it happen to people and I've seen them kind of go crazy. Um so going back though to what you just said about there are a couple of things that come to mind. Um the immaterial of the spirit and matter. 
I was speaking with the editor of my book last night and we were trying to come up with another phrase for the word <laughs> for the words divine feminine and he came up with proto corpus so you know pro the body basically that the feminine does not deny the reality of the body but rather sanctifies the body makes the body grows the body in our in her own body so we were talking about that aspect which again ties in with this mitochondrial um inference that certain qualities especially of a psychic and spiritual nature are passed down through the mitochondrial dna and indeed that's what the work of iona miller indicates she's the lady i was mentioning earlier who who is deeply involved in science but looking at these abilities from a scientific point of view and she and i participated in an experiment um through Stanford, I think it was Stanford University, um, where they're looking for a genetic component in psychic ability. So we took part up until a certain level. And then when when we realized they were going to actually store our raw DNA information and use it for other purposes, we we both backed out. But um, certainly this is being studied at a very high level because people are very interested in in high levels of our society, in what makes people have these abilities and why do some people not? And I've discovered in my own experience of being in esoteric groups here in France that there are two factions of people drawn to these groups generally. Those who certainly have some kind of power, it may be worldly power, um, such as money or, or social status or whatever, and those who have spiritual or mystical or psychic abilities and want to put them into some kind of formal use um and it seems that those that i mean this is a very 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 vast subject but those that don't have the abilities covet um the people who do and it can become very very dark you know this has been going on for hundreds of years with certain aristocratic rich persons um, using children, psychic children for psychic experiments and women and things like that. So Crowley was just one of those people that, you know, recruited sensitives and used them in a way to try to access whatever energies or entities he was trying to bring through. So, That's the mitochondrial DNA and bloodline aspect. Um, But from the other perspective of um, the bloodline, the holy blood and the holy grail, well, I have met Henry Lincoln and we've had a couple of conversations and Henry has become very disillusioned with the whole thing. Um, he's now old, he's in his 80s, maybe even his 90s now. Um, and obviously he has many decades of people treating him like some kind of demigod. Um, and so he's become very, very cynical about the whole thing. He told me the only book that he stands by of his own work is a book called The Holy Place, which is about the, <clears throat> the um, 
the geology and geomancy of this region and how that interacts with human consciousness and why certain things have been built in certain places. So that's his current passion and has been for the past 10 years. But I think that's because, well, he also told me he's very, very upset about what he calls the bastardization of Rennes-le-Chateau. And he feels guilty for bringing so many people to this region who shouldn't have been here, in his opinion, um, and who shouldn't necessarily have known what they now know. So he he carries a great weight upon him. And each time I've seen him, I can see it in his energy. I can see it in how he conducts himself and how he talks. He feels very burdened by, by that book and by what he revealed. Now, on the other hand, my own journey, I can't say too much, but my own journey has led me to actually seeing and touching some of these scrolls, which Henry himself didn't even see or touch. Um, This happened when I was in mid-France, completely unrelated before I came to this region. And I happened to meet a man at a book fair um, and got talking to him, told him a few things about my own path. He invited me to his home after grilling me for about 12 hours in French, which is... (laughs) Really, really hard work. Um, and then he took me upstairs and said, okay, I want to show you something. He took me into a, a separate wing of his house and into a secret room at the back of this wing. And then inside this room, he had all these artifacts that he collected from the last 50 years of studying Rennes-le-Chateau and Montsegur and the history of this region. And he pulled these scrolls out of a a safe. And he then took me into his office and showed me scans of the other scrolls that he doesn't keep in his house because he's been told that if they are ever published, then the person he received them from will kill him. So they're kept in a bank vault somewhere. But he showed me the scans. And what all of this revealed to me is within the Catholic Church. So basically, the whole crux of the Da Vinci Code, um, the Priory of Sion, the Rose Line, the whole thing is true. And I, <laughs> I'm going to stake my reputation now by saying that. But the past 10 years of my life and my research and the things I've seen um, indicate that the whole thing is true. Now, what that means is... Within the Catholic Church, throughout history, there have been a faction, mostly aristocratic priests of certain bloodlines, who have perpetuated the knowledge that Christ didn't die on the cross. Um, He went on to have children. They came here to the south of France and they reproduced with Mary Magdalene, perhaps. There is a lot of um, documented evidence to this effect. Um, Not only that, but they settled in a particular region and the maps that this man showed me indicate where that region is and it's in the region where I am now. Um, The maps indicate 
where this this tomb is and where this tomb is allegedly there is also a temple of the house of david within this particular mountain where the tomb is supposed to be located the man who who showed me the, the the scrolls these being the scrolls by the way that were taken from inside the altar in ren le chateau um, some of those scrolls the ones that are mentioned in the holy blood and the holy grail which i've never read by the way um so these scrolls indicate that at the very least whether it's true or not there have been throughout history factions within the catholic church who have continued to propagate this this idea and this idea was perpetuated by certain noble families throughout this region of france so they believed or were led to believe by their own ancestors that they themselves were descendants of of the, the bloodline of Christ and Mary Magdalene so <clears throat> i hope this isn't too shocking for you both no that's that's great that was great thank you for sharing that there's, there's much more to the story um and i wanted to say that my teacher's position on it um when i was younger was that it may be true it may not be true but we shouldn't allow the story is say Christ did have descendants and even if they weren't his lineal descendants but believe they were that's still significant because of the myth but yeah you know either way it's something that exists either as a myth or as a fact and so exerts a power but what i was taught was that as gnostics we need to remember that uh, and not be, become sidetracked by the idea of Christ having descendants because they're no less or more able to inherit the myster- the true mysteries of the Christos and the Sophia than we are. Like we have just as much of a right to those mysteries um, and we're capable of awakening and uh, experiencing gnosis and uh, communing with the divine as well. And I think what some people end up thinking through a reductionistic materialistic oversimplification is that, okay, well, those are the, you know, those people are the chosen ones and they're, mm. you, you know, they're the only ones that really have access to the myst- true mysteries of Christ and all these kinds of things. And then it ends up alienating them and they sort of objectify and fetishize this instead yes. of investigate it as a, as an aid to their own awakening. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And that is pretty much what happens. Let's talk a little bit about how you came to the Gnostic church, if you're okay with that. Yeah, sure. Um, there is, there, there was one more thing that I wanted to mention about that particular topic. Oh, um, please, of course. Yeah. Ren the Chateau, the, oh, that's right, the, you mentioned the Merovingians. Um, as far as I can tell, there's no real proof. So basically, before I came to this region, I was in mid-France as well. And there is a very strong Merovingian presence um, because it was a woman called um, St. Radegond with um, St. Helena who created one of the first monastic uh, orders here in France at the time of the Merovingians. And St. Radegond was actually a Thuringian princess who was kidnapped by um, one of the Merovingian kings. Um, I can't remember his name, either Clo- Clovis or the other one. <laughs> and 
forced to marry him after he had slaughtered her entire family. Um, so people who go on about the Merovingians need to look more deeply into history to see that they're not exactly, you know, people who who are shining with the Christ light. Right, they're yeah. slaughtering, you know, young girls' families so they can kidnap. And that's not the only reason they wanted their land. They wanted the land because Thuringia at that time was part of a tribal state. It's now part of Germany, but back then it was all connected to this, this land mass. And so they just really wanted to, um, how can I put it, expand their territory. And because, um, because Radegond was a princess, they wanted her bloodline too, because the bloodline gave legitimacy in the same way that Herod insisted on marrying Mariamne, which is where my name comes from. Um, you know, these, these, and in the same way that the Romans um, kidnapped the Sabine women, basically throughout history, there have been many different groups of people who want to begin some kind of noble royal lineage with the divine right to rule ascribed to it, but they can't do it because they don't have the right bloodline. They don't have the right status, for example. In the case of the Sabine women in Rome, the Sabines were known to be prophetesses. They were um, extremely spiritually advanced women. Um, their culture was very egalitarian. Um, and so the Romans, the, Rome was founded by, by a bunch of hooligans, basically, who then had to create their own foundation myth. You know, you were talking about mythology. So Rome was created on a myth. The Mer but with the bloodline of the Sabine women, um, and then those those offspring had this you know divine right they had through their mothers, and so with the Merovingians, Mero, as you probably know, is a sea god, a bit like a, a Melusine type character, um, and I discovered also when I was researching the genealogy of these different bloodlines that. There are many aristocratic um, spiritual orders throughout Europe who attribute their origins to different deities, and this has been going throughout history. Um, so in, in Italy, for example, there is an order in Naples that I know about um, who ascribe their, their inheritance to Hera, so, you know, they really, really believe that the goddess Hera was their ancestor. Uh, yeah, I believe Caesar made a connection with Venus at, at one point. That's right. Well. So, yeah. yeah. So you, you both know this history already. So for me, yeah. the kind of Christ Mary Magdalene story is, is very similar. It's kind of like, well, trying to answer where do we come from? You know, who are our ancestors? And where do we get this divine spark within us from? Well, okay, maybe we get it from this goddess or from Mero or from Christ or from Mary Magdalene, you know? Well, and it's interesting because it's fallen out of popularity um, in the past, in this recent era due to social politics. Mm -hmm. But um, really, it's been part of occult, um, occult teaching for a very long time, the idea of uh, human beings acquiring uh, a sort of inheritance from one deity or another 
And it actually connects to the teaching that the archangels are the equivalent of the planetary gods and the different planetary gods or archangels, or one might even say archons, are connected to different nations who are their peoples. And the nations aren't necessarily meant in our modern understanding of like a geographical domain with borders, but a peoples, you know, and the same, similar to how the, I mean, the idea that the Jews are the children of Yadabaot um, or Saturn, mm-hmm. that's not unique. I mean, as Dominic said, the Romans traced one, the Romans claimed one lineage from Venus, but they also claimed a lineage directly from Mars because of uh, Romulus and Remus, mm-hmm. just as the uh, Northmen and the um, um, many of the uh, Anglo-Saxons believed that Woden was their ancestor, or you could go even further north and say that, talk about um, the, those who considered to be the god Frey or Ing to be their ancestor. Or you can even go into other countries like, you know, in, in, Yoruba, in Yoruba, this principle is also understood and and you have um, different deities being the ancestral root of different people. So this isn't something that is really that far out. Um, it's just a matter of understanding how it works. Because what do you what happens when you have one individual who say maybe the child? And this is even found in the Babylonian myths. I mean, there are human beings who are either given. Uh, given DNA, I don't want to use the word DNA in that context, but given blood or, you know, some sort of life force from the gods or who are actually created by said gods. And then if you look at the biblical, uh, well, extra biblical, I should say, Book of Enoch, where the Nephilim descend to earth and mate with the daughters of men and produce giants. Well, I mean, there again, you have an idea of the divine descending to the material realm and uh, connecting with human beings and human beings acquiring something inherited from them. Absolutely. And what I find fascinating is how these myths continually repeat. It's like there's a new cultural permutation of them in every era. Yes, which makes me feel that there must be some kind of truth to them. But it's also, it's also, we have to also recognize, which we, I think, have, that it's, it's obviously used as a method of manipulation uh, for political gain as well. So we have to really be cognizant mm. of that angle Which as brings well. me back to what you asked me about Priory of Scion. Um, well, actually, you didn't ask me. <laughs> you stated that, um, yeah, that you'd had two different types of information about that. One, that it was a hoax, and then secondly, that, it was a hoax that it was a hoax. Um, my own journey has brought me in contact with somebody who, who is very much a part of the Priory of Zion, um, the real one. It's still existing, and I have every reason to believe everything that he said to me is true because my own intuition felt from the very beginning that it was a lie, that that was a hoax. Um, and obviously when I saw those scrolls and I learned about all these different groups that were involved in, in the story, um, and I saw the maps and everything else, it was, it was synchronicity. So it's very strange because when I looked at those, um, those scrolls and the man took me into his office, he was decoding some of the scrolls on his computer in front of me because <laughs> he cracked the part of the code. 
And I just remember thinking this, I'm, I'm living in like the real life Da Vinci code. And it wasn't a nice feeling. <laughs> it was a, it was a disturbing sensation because for thousands of years, you know, people have, have died because of this information and they've killed because of this information. Um, and it has, as you say, been used for political reasons. Um, the man who, is I believe in the Priory of Zion. Um, he believes that, well, he doesn't believe he was told. And the reason he's in the Priory of Zion is because he is a specific bloodline descendant of somebody who, who was very important in, in that particular story. And so he was sought out 20 years ago um, by, by people involved in this whole thing. Anyhow, what he told me very strongly is that it is a deeply political, geopolitical organization with a particular agenda. And that's why I'm kind of hesitant to say too much because I've discovered that within most of these esoteric orders, they, they, mostly if they have worldly power also do have political and geopolitical agendas including trying to get you know there is a there is a legend or a myth that that there is a, a king who's going to return to the throne here in France you know so there are different factions trying to influence to have certain certain members of certain bloodlines put back onto the throne here so you can imagine yeah, no, thank you. And you don't have to go any deeper if you wouldn't like to uh, do that. But it, it seems to also, because I, I do want to talk yeah. about the Cathars, because obviously yeah. you're in Cathar country. It seems to, what you just said, align those politicians with the Rex Mundi, the, the king of the world, Satan, uh, to the Cathars. So it's, it's inter- interesting from that angle. Being that you are in Cathar country, how how aligned do you feel with the practices of the Cathars? And maybe can you talk about the, the influence in the area? So I realize I haven't actually told you about my Gnostic, how I got ordained. and It's all part of the same. It's such a huge story. That's why it's hard to unpick the whole thing. Um, but just to say that the, the lady who... I met in Paris who invited me to join her esoteric order related to the bloodlines and so on. Um, Later became involved with the Gnostic church through a connection she had in the South of France. And because I was already an active member of two orders with her, she wanted to invite me to become ordained into, into the French Gnostic church, which she became a part of. And so that happened in 2016 on Valentine's day the day after I moved here permanently to France. I'd already been working with her for three years by that point um, and studying with her. And so I, I received my ordination on the, on the 14th of February 2016 in Paris and then became you know, more fully involved as, as time went on when I was here in France. So just to get that out of the way, that's how that happened. <laughs> and I want to just jump in real quickly uh, for those that may not understand the the true Gnostic Church is one and universal, and we uh, communally support a spirit of free inquiry. So <clears throat> where you may hear things in this interview that you may consider controversial or not so much, you may hear things you agree with or don't agree with. 
in the Gnostic Church, we are non-dogmatic. Uh, we have oral teachings, and we have, um, you know, uh, as well as uh, documented teachings. But the spirit of free inquiry, the spirit of discovery, the spirit of an open mind, an open heart, an open soul are pre- prerequisite and a must for us. Um, and I think that, that that's an important thing to mention because there may be people who aren't fully aware of that and may consider us a church in a dogmatic sense uh, where you're only allowed to believe certain things or where the things that one particular Gnostic may be espousing are the, are the only doctrine, but that's, that's not how it works for us. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And that's kind of where I was going with uh, reference to the Cathars being that you are right there in Cathar country. Do you uh, align yourself with what the Cathars traditionally taught? So the church that I kind of um, ordained into, we have uh, apostolic Jacobite succession through the Syriac Orthodox line. And it goes into different esotericists, including papers. Um, but most importantly for me is the presence of Jules Doinel, who, as I said earlier, in, in 18, 1880 or something like that, um, formulated the Eglise Gnostique here in France because he was a Freemason um, and an esotericist, and uh, he was an archivist also in Orléans Library. And he worked with a medium called Lady Kate Ness, who is the Duchess of Pomar. And together in uh, clairvoyant mediumistic circles, which was so popular, of course, at that time, Jules Doinel and Lady Kate Ness received information, which is transcribed. You know, the whole, the whole uh, seance is transcribed, in which they were contacted by 13 Cathar bishops who gave their names and who tasked Jules Dornell with reconstituting the, the Gnostic Cathar Church. And they declared um, the 1890s were going to be the beginning of the Third Age, which they described um, as the era of Gnosis restored. And so Jules Dornell, being very, <laughs> very open-minded, um, and having you know connections with high society and money and so on, being part of that occult revival, he he very much took this on board and he created this beautiful um, Gnostic church. And part of the information that he received, and again uh, I'll speak again about different people involved in this particular stream, but it seems to me that the divine feminine was rising here in France from um, 1850 onwards, I would say, um, with a particular mission in mind. And when we look at the amount of visions and apparitions that people had of of the Virgin Mary um, throughout the whole of France, not only in Lourdes or in La La Salette or wherever, but there have been very, very many that are not documented widely. So there were a swathe of people having apparitions and visitations of a Dame Blanche um, in the 1800s. Um, at the same time, we had the, the beginning of the cult of the Sacred Heart, which also began here in France. So we had an uprising of mystical Christianity um, around the Divine Feminine, around Mary. And so 
Jules Dynell was one of many people around that time who seemed to be receiving the same information. And Jules was given the information that women had to return to their rightful place in the church beside men at the altar. And Eugene Vintras, who is also connected to my lineage, he was given the same information a decade earlier or perhaps more. And he was a priest um, from an area near to Paris who had his own parish and who became very influential because he 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 was a mystic a visionary but he also had the ability to perform miracles and he became very popular with the aristocratic um, dispossessed nobles of France who believed that you know he was going to be helpful in getting a certain man named Nandorf returned to the throne so there was a particular movement at that time of um, sort of mystical Christian, her- heretical Catholic noble families who had connections within the church, within the official Catholic church, but who had very alternative ideas. And I believe that Berenger Saunier um, from the Renaissance Chateau mystery was also connected to this particular current. So it seems to me there were two things happening at the same time. There was a a genuine mystical um, uprising of the divine feminine happening in this part of France and in other parts too, like uh, Eugene Vintras also had visions of of Mary or Sophia and, and in which he was told he had to bring women into the church. And so Eugene Vintras, a normally ordained Catholic priest, started his own divine feminine cult in his church where he brought different women in and ordained them and taught them different masses that he was channeling directly from Mary himself. And he had particular mystical practices and he was working a lot with angels who were giving him their names. So Vintras was doing all of that. And again, this was at the time of people like... um, Stanislav de Gaeta, who, who was, you know, there was the whole black magic uprising as well at the same time with people doing the black masses. And so the problem with that is that certain people like Vintress were then accused of perpetuating black masses too, because what they were doing was so completely heretical. So this uprising of the, the divine feminine that was happening here in France in the 1800s to me, is part of an ongoing kind of spiritual infusion of the presence of Sophia making herself manifest within different individuals for a particular goal. I believe that the particular goal that she has is to bring about this third age, which we've talked about, the age which is, you know, you, um, Jules Dornell called it the era of Gnosis Restored, um, Joaquin de Fior said it was going to be the era of love or the age of the Holy Spirit. And Eugene Vintress said it was going to be the age of the divine feminine. And so for some reason, different individuals around the same period of time seem to be connecting independently to the same information. And that to me is what's really, really interesting. Now, the reason I mention all of this 
ahead of talking about the Cathars is because it's all connected. So Jules Doinel, at the same time he received these 13 Cathar bishops, was told, you have to bring women back into the church. The same information that Eugene Vintress received a generation before. The same information Joaquin de Fior was trying to express, but obviously he was too afraid to say it openly. And so Gilles Donnell, I think he took this a step further than anyone else. And because of that, I consider him to be really the spiritual leader of the, the church that I'm personally involved in. He was able to receive the information from spirit and to make it manifest here on the physical plane. He created the French Gnostic Church. He ordained different women. He had his own liturgy and he was channeling with Lady Kate Ness, supposedly rituals directly from the Cathars. Now, what's interesting about Jules Doinal is because he was an archivist, he was able to check out the names of the 13 bishops that came to him in the seance. He had access to literature that other people didn't. And each of the names checked out. Wow, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. And recent research by the Iglesia Gnostica Apostolique um, that I, has also um, kind of un, unveiled that some of the actual um, rights and information besides the names of those bishops has also somehow been historically accurate. And this is at a time when they, there's information that Duanel did not even have access to. He, he would have had no way to, the, this information hadn't been unearthed or, 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 you know, brought to light at the time of his reception of this gift, yet he was transmitting this information and, you know, long since in our modern age, it's been found that this information is historically consistent with what the Cathars practiced. Yes, so, that's right. I mean, most of the information, obviously, so I've been here in this region now for three years and my partner, Richard Stanley, is an expert in uh, Monsegur and the Cathars, having lived here for 10 years. Um, and he very much became immersed in all of this. And so he's he's taught me pretty much everything that he knows on that subject. But I've also done my own independent research looking at the Inquisition records and different academic texts as well. And the truth is we don't know completely what the Cathars practised. Um, we have hints and we have we certainly know more about their beliefs but then again as someone said to me the history of the cathars is written as if as if you know the germans wrote the history of the jews we are reading about the cathars from the inquisition records we're reading about them from you know people who are catholic um who are particularly against them um we don't actually have any any books that, that remain, you know, we can only speculate about the similarities, as you said, between the, the Bogomils and different um, Gnostic uh, streams. Uh, and, and yet, at the same time, as you say, there are some small aspects which continually bleed through. And yeah, and, and um, you know, we have some religious texts from them and, 
Uh, but, but unfortunately, you really hit the nail on the head with something, and I want to focus in on that for a minute, and that is the point you made about how, well, let's just put it a different way. You know, history is written, written by the victor. And so yes. what we do know is this. There is the presence of Gnostics in France dating back to a time prior to the Catholic presence in France. St. Irenaeus was sent to France with the, expl- well, he's not a saint, so I refuse to call him that. Irenaeus, mm-hmm. the um, brutal imbecile, was sent to France to, um, to preach and to eventually attempt to eradicate the presence of Christian Gnostics who were there long before the Catholics. Um, so we can attest to a history of Gnostics going back to the very earliest stage of the Christian era. Um, we have myths that support this as well about the uh, migration of uh, apostles to this area. Um, so we do have this history in France, however, sorry, however, when we look at the accounts of the Gnostics for a long time before the discovery of the Najamadi Library, the Manichaean texts, the Pistis Sophia, things like this, all we had were the accounts of the um, patristic, the patristic accounts, the accounts of the church fathers. Those accounts are slander. And, you know, more often than not, they say absurd things that you would expect and that you also see, for instance, in the witch trials in the Middle Ages, you know, orgies, baby killing, um, you know, all kinds of just ridiculous, evil slander, you know, all the women are prostitutes, uh, you know, they share each other in common, classic slander, yes. classic garbage. And so yeah. when we look at these things, we have to take this critical eye toward them and understand that there has been an ongoing campaign uh, which has only stopped very recently. I mean, during the time of Vintress and and then Duanel and and um, these other amazing figures. I mean, even during that time, the Catholic Church was aggressively persecuting Gnostics. It, yes. It's only it's only in a very recent period of time that Gnostics haven't been beaten, burned, raped, uh, tortured, um, imprisoned, um, stolen from. So. You know, we're finally in this age, which we might also call the coming aeon of the Holy Spirit or the coming aeon of Sophia, that where Gnostics can come to the surface again and speak freely about these things and be themselves. But in order to reclaim our tradition, we also have to understand that the records that were provided by these sources are not completely reliable. Exactly. And I do think it's interesting if you look at the persecution of the Cathars, if you look at and you look at the witch craze in Europe, it all relates back to the early um, Roman Catholic and, of course, Orthodox movement. But if you read the writings of Irenaeus, Augustine, Hippolytus, Tertullian, there is this incredible and absolutely bizarre strain of woman hate. Absolutely. It's, it's, I, as a man, I, I can't even really, I don't understand it. it. It's bizarre to me. But these people were virulently against the idea of women being in positions of authority, much less spiritual authority. And I think one of the things that upset them the most about the Gnostics, besides the Gnostics' insistence that a human being can directly contact, experience, and commune with the divine, is the idea of these spiritual women 
who were prophetic and apostolic and mystic and powerful, um, it terrified them. And so what happened was a demonization of the feminine and of the divine feminine. This produced a collective um, neurosis in the group psyche, uh, especially of Europeans, but of, of you know, in, in most areas that were Christian. Uh, and so women became relegated, women and, a, and, a, and really a misreading, which is contra the Gnostic reading of the Genesis narrative of Adam and Eve, uh, were used to vilify and demonize women. And so women ended up being, I guess you could say, consigned to the same domain as the collective shadow. And then we see this come to fruition in the witch craze. Absolutely. And this and this this perspective was was there very early on, and as we've discussed, I don't know if during the recording or before the recording that the Bogomils and the Cathars and others didn't didn't subscribe to that, and so that's why they were targeted partially. That's right. Um, I didn't mean, by the way, to indicate that you know there there is no validity in practicing um, what remains of the rituals of the Cathars when. I said we don't know exactly what they did because um, there is a lot that we do know. For example, we know that the Cathar faith was mostly transmitted through the women, just like Christianity was also in the beginning. And we know that here in this region particularly, um, there were very many noble families um, whose genealogy I studied extensively who were giving huge amounts of their money and their land to the Catholic Church originally, you know, because they thought they were going to be saved by doing that and it was the right thing to do and so on. And then when they converted to Catharism, these records abruptly stop of the donations they were making to the Catholic Church. Um, and what, I mean, the whole subject about Catharism, what I know about that could take a show in itself, but... Um, to put it succinctly, women were given positions of spiritual authority within Catharism, which were unheard of elsewhere in Europe at that time. Not only that, but this region was the the hub of the the courts of love, which were created um, here in Puyver, in uh, in the castle of the de Congost family. The de Congost family were thrown out, well, not thrown out, their castle was besieged and taken from them by Simon de Montfort, and they went and hid in Monsecure for pretty much 30 years until, until everyone in Monsecure was burned during the final siege. So the story of the Cathars for me is very much a story of women because if you look through through all the history, we have Esclamon de Foix, we have Esclamon de Allian, we have three different Esclamons, and the Monsignor was commissioned by Esclamon de Foix to be rebuilt to home the Cathar heretics who were being persecuted by Simon de Montfort during the middle of the seed, at the middle of the, the crusade, sorry. Um, and the courts of love, as you know, originally were created by Eleanor of Aquitaine, where women had the right to be judges, to judge, you know, on what was happening in the courts. Um, and the whole idea of courtly love as well was really deeply embodied here in Occitania at that time. 
it was a very rich heritage and the story about Monsignor and, and the Albigensian crusade, there are two particular incidents which really bear mentioning and one is the death of the lady Geralda de Lorac, um, who was hideously murdered by the dogs of war in her castle because she fought physically alongside her brother Armory um, against the Crusaders. And when they finally caught her and they took the castle, they raped her and threw her down a well and then killed her over three days by throwing rocks on her until she died. So she had a really horrendous death. Um, and she was a very fated woman who was extremely well-educated. Um, she ran the castle in the absence of her husband. I don't know whether he was dead or what happened to him. Um, but she was extremely well-educated. She was known to study you know, different mystical traditions, so not only Catharism, but there was a cross-pollination of magic and, you know, coming from Spain, coming from Arabia, coming, you know, through this whole uh, melting pot that was in this region at that time. Geraldo was certainly a person who was a, um, a almost like an iconic figure before the Esclamons were of a, of a well-developed, well-educated woman who was very tolerant. And that is the key to the Cathar and the Occitanian story, this region was known for its tolerance. And that was the reason why the Catholic Church and the state joined forces to destroy it and to destroy the Cathars. The local noble families had found within Catharism something which related to how they already perceived life and how they already lived. Within Catharism, you know, Sex was not considered to be a sin. They didn't particularly place any value upon marriage. Um, there are many records in, in the Inquisition of, of different marriages taking place uh, whereby a Cathar husband who could, could simply, or wife, could simply just walk away and say they were no longer married because the marriage, they didn't believe it had been um, judged as, as true in Cathar belief and a woman was free to just go and, and be with someone else. So there are different um, things that are written whereby, um, say, for example, Esclamon de Allian, in some, uh, in some of the records, she's known as Esclamon the Bastard and her brother is also known as a bastard. But then when I looked at the actual history, the actual records, um, her her father simply married another woman, <laughs> but never got officially divorced. But you know, took another wife under the Cathar faith, as was allowed. But of course, the Catholics considered her to be a bastard because of that. And that's what I mean when I say there's a great deal of um, misinformation and uh, about these people and the way they write about them and the story about Esclamonda Allian's conception is that she was, she was the offspring of her father raping a nun. So, you know, going on a wolf hunt and then deciding to uh, rock up at a convent and be let in and, and rape the nun that let him in. And then Esclamonda Allian was meant to be the offspring of this, this act of rape. And intuitively that never felt right to me. And, and so 
I decided to try to uncover the truth about that story. And the truth simply was that her, her father took another wife under the Cathar law. That's very interesting. And it's, and this it's, is, sorry, Janice, uh, it, it can get very confusing because the heresiologists kind of muddy everything. Um, I actually heard the opposite where, where part of the Cathar conversion included that they needed to accept people who were divorced into, into, you know, if they were to become part of the main fold that they would have to accept divorcees because that wasn't part of their belief. So what you said there was totally the opposite. So that's, that's very interesting and it can get very muddy. It gets very, very muddy and we don't know, you know, we don't know because we don't see records where they officially divorced did official divorce even exist in this region at that time? Were people allowed to get divorced? Yeah. I don't know. Janice. Well, and I think it's a good you I think it's a good rule of thumb to always take the Catholic accounts of uh, Gnostics with a very heavy grain of salt and walk mm-hmm. in with the assumption that they're going to be attempting to slander um, everyone involved. And that if there are women involved, there's going to be every attempt to defame their character possible. You know, and I want to jump backwards in time a little bit, uh, just because it relates directly to what we're discussing. Um, Another example of uh, the lies of the church, pseudo-saints of the Roman Catholic Church, um, (laughs) would be Jerome. Jerome is the reason that Mary Magdalene, even in today's... Um, modern culture, uh, he's the reason Mary Magdalene is misunderstood to be a prostitute when she was never a prostitute. He is the reason. He is the source of that misunderstanding. It was a total fabrication, and it was deliberate. What's interesting to me here is his deliberate vilification of Mary Magdalene. Um, It not only brings to mind in the Gnostic Gospels, where Peter becomes angry at perceiving Jesus kissing Mary Magdalene on the lips, um, Mm -hmm. which is symbolic of Jesus showing favor to the Gnostic church because Mary Magdalene and Mary Jesus's mother were symbols of two branches of the Gnostic church, which was female. Um, And this connects also to Pope Joan and so on and so forth. But not to get ahead of myself, the other distortion historically the other historical distortion that Jerome is responsible for is the mistranslation of the passage in Isaiah um, uh, into the Vulgate. He translated um, the Septuagint into the Vulgate, and he translated the passage in Isaiah, which were, which was using Babylonian mythological references to allude to the falling of the king of Babylon, and he used references to Helel Barshakar and um, uh, which is which was the uh, discussing the two sons of the goddess Venus, who and, and really it's a cosmological myth involving you know an attempt to ascend to the throne and then falling, but it really describes the rising and uh, heliacal setting of Venus on the horizon during the year. Well, he mm-hmm. Isaiah who lived in Babylon at least supposedly, if Isaiah even existed. Isaiah lived in Babylon and um, was using Babylonian mythological imagery in the same way that uh, John of Patmos used um, 
other imagery in the apocalypse to allude to the fall of the ruler at the time. Well, Jerome, having no understanding of the historical context, perfectly in keeping with his ignorance, translated this Mm -hmm. as Lucifer. Now, this is problematic, not Mm -hmm. only because Lucifer um, was used as a name for Venus, which connects us back. So there's an interesting thing here going on, maybe in the unconscious, in this case of a deliberate distortion relating to Venus, who of course is the goddess that is the goddess of femininity. And then the demonization of Mary Magdalene. So from Jerome, the association between Lucifer, the name Lucifer and the biblical adversary, Satan, that's when that emerges. However, it's not, it's not accurate. And among the early Christians, um, Lucifer was a title used for Jesus because he brought light, he illuminated or enlightened. Um, the reason I'm bringing all this onto the table here is because of the vilification of Mary Magdalene and the vilification of the feminine and the divine feminine. Um, and as, as you know very, very well, um, Mary Magdalene is very important in France. Yes. And and there's a lot of mysticism around uh, around um, Mary Magdalene coming to France, and a potential child she had, and all these different things. And um, I was just wondering what some of your thoughts on those matters would be about Mary Magdalene, or yes, yeah, about Mary Magdalene and and the French, the sort of French understanding of Mary Magdalene. And do you think that there's a connection between Mary Magdalene and the Cathars? Um, that has been stated, yes. And I met a Freemason in uh, in Renlaban who told me that in his belief and his research, because he said he'd seen documentation to this effect, but I don't know where or how, um, the Cathars, some of the Cathars at least believed that they were descended, descended from Mary Magdalene and Jesus. So... Again, we're getting back to this idea of, you know, a sacred bloodline or a particular family group or tradition, whether it's mythological or not. Um, certainly, I was told by, by the Freemason that that was, that was one of the Cathar's beliefs. Um, regarding, like, the deeper aspect of all of this, um, for me, uh, as for Richard, it goes back long before the Cathars were even here because all I can say is that in this region and in France in general, but here in particular, it seems to be a hotbed for the manifestations of physical presences of the feminine divine. Um, as I said about you know, Our Lady of Lourdes, for example, um, What we discovered in our joint research is that there have been many such cases of these type of manifestations. I have seen one, Richard has seen one, and and we know other people who've seen the Dame Blanche of Monsignor, for example. Um, And when I say see, I mean physically with our actual eyes. This was no kind of psychic vision. This was a real manifestation. And so much as this may sound completely crazy, it seems to me that there is um, some kind of geomagnetic 
reality to the Pyrenees, to this entire region um, where we live, to Montsegur in particular, but also to several other mountains in the region, such as Bucharest, which creates the conditions for the actual physical manifestation of a particular feminine divine. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but um, so regarding Mary Magdalene, for me, whether or not she, you know, she was married to Jesus and she had his children or, or anything like that doesn't, it didn't matter to me at all until I came here and became involved in this kind of against my, my wishes in a way. It just came to me. It wasn't like I was looking for this information. I agree with what you said, well, in the sense that the, you know, Mary Magdalene and Mary the Mother represent a different mystical tradition, a feminine mystical tradition, which, which they were part of long before Jesus came on the scene, I think. But there was a kind of cross-pollination which took place. And so regarding Mary Magdalene as a whole in this region, um, Evidently, the the mythology is that she came here, she physically came here, and her body is here, and her descendants are here. But I would say, to me, if that's true, which it could be, it's almost not as interesting as, as what else is here. For example, why would they come here in particular? They could have gone to any other places. Um, okay, so there was a big Jewish community in Narbonne at that time. And, you know, if they wanted to hide, they would have been able to hide in, in that Jewish community and they would have had friends there. But why come to Ren-Laban, which is the story of where they ended up? Um, there has to be something else going on. And so for me, it's this kind of there is something very sacred in the earth here in France which draws people to it. And I believe this, this ancient feminine divine presence has been here since prehistory because the oldest known depiction of a goddess outside of, um, in Europe, basically, is, it has been found here in this region. It's called the Venus de Brassempuy. Um, and it's an ancient bone um, sculpture. And so my feeling, it may not directly answer your question, but my feeling is that there is something mystical um, related to a, an ancient, not only one, but um, the presence of several ancient I don't know how to describe them, divine beings who, who manifest here and have manifested throughout history. That's very interesting. And I don't know French, but did you, did you say white woman earlier? Yeah, la dame blanche, the white lady. And it, that's interesting, um, the white lady, because then you have the black Madonna very prevalent as well. Um, what are your thoughts on that and the connections? Yeah, there are connections because, as you know, the cult of the Black Madonna, again, is very prevalent here in France and linked with the Cathars. On a metaphysical level, to me, the Black Madonna is Our Lady of the Void. So she is like the, 
the ground of all being, you know, the the cosmic womb from whom we emerge and in whom we live and have our being. At the same time, Black Madonna, um, she actually originally was a meteoric stone found in Pessinus and worshipped in Pessinus by a group of women, priestesses, and um, she was then called Kaibal and uh, put together with the Kaibal Attis myth of uh, another sacrificial sun god. Um, and she was brought to Rome, actually. So the original Black Madonna was a, meteor- a meteoric stone, which I think had specific powers and was certainly um, attributed to a number of miracles. And when Rome was being um, attacked, I think, by Hannibal, the oracles said, if you can bring the goddess of Pessinus, um, you know, we shall be saved. And I don't know how they managed to do this, but the story goes that that, um, the original Black Madonna, which is a meteoric stone from Pessinus, was never, ever handled by a man. It could only be handled by women. And so it was passed from the hands of one woman to the hands of another woman to the hands of another woman up until the point where it boarded the ship to go to Rome, upon which it was handed to a male um, bishop and installed in in Rome. I don't know what bishop he was. I, I, I don't actually know if he was a bishop, but anyhow. So he was. she was only handled by women. Then she was taken to Rome, and she is now under the Vatican. That's cool. Um, as you as you probably know, there's a very similar story with uh, Artemis in uh, Ephesus, where there's a, a meteor associated with that cult, and it's interesting because there is a, a black depiction of Artemis as well, like a black uh, skinned Artemis in a lot of the statuary and imagery, and she is connected. Uh, later on with the Virgin Mary, who is thought to perhaps have uh, ended up there. Do you make connections with the the Black Madonna in France uh, with uh, Mary Magdalene? Yes, I would say so. But I think those connections have been put together largely because of the Templars, because the Templars were also uh, worshipping the Black Madonna and worshipping, or at least... Mm-hmm. supposedly protecting the um, the bloodline of Mary Magdalene. It is interesting, too, because uh, there's absolutely that uh, current of divine feminine veneration from, uh, from, their, from their spiritual master before they were even formed. And then also Magdala, Mary Magdalene, Magdala means tower, um, and really the area in Galilee are, or what might be called Israel today was in Phoenicia, and there has been an argument argument put forward that um, Mary Magdalene may have been initiated into the mysteries and a priestess of the mysteries of um, Ishtar, Inanna, or Astarte, uh, which to me kind of makes it kind of makes a lot of sense. And what you're saying yeah. about the black stone, I mean, also Aphrodite in her in the earliest form was also worshipped as a black stone in Cyprus. Now that I did not know. I just want to ask you both what you think about what I said about this cult of the white lady, these apparitions and these kind of 
divine beings that seem to manifest here that are always of a feminine nature. Oh, I absolutely think that there's validity to that. And I think that there is a connection to water from what I understand. There's often yeah. springs uh, nearby. And yeah. uh, my understanding that there's a uh, one of the branches of the Gnostic mysteries is always associated directly with clean, pure water. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. for instance, consider the Mandeans who only perform their baptisms in clean running water. And uh, in the Gnostic, in some of the Gnostic books of the Nachamadi Library, even Jesus is called um, the pure water or the, the living water. And they have a secret name associated with Jesus connected to the spirits of the waters, which of course connects us to like Melusine and such. But also I think the water is a huge component of the white lady. Even if you go back to the Greek goddess Leucothea, which means I believe the white goddess. And um, she's associated with the ocean and Mm -hmm. connected to the myth of the Pelagians, Pelagians where the, there's uh, she and a uh, divine serpent are responsible for the hatching of the world egg. Mm. So these things all kind of um, gestate in the seething cauldron of my unconscious. <laughs> it reminded me of uh, uh, nymphs, uh, which is compatible with what you, what you were just saying. I think with nymphs are often seen connected to certain locations, uh, specifically with water as well. So, that's where my mind went. That's right. And what's curious is that, um, well, if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind telling you about my experience with what I saw. Absolutely. Yeah, we'd love and, that. And uh, speak a little about Richard's experience too. But um, my own experience happened in, in 2016, just three months after I'd moved here and after I'd been ordained. And I went on pilgrimage to <clears throat> a place called Orcival in the Auvergne region of France. And um, there was a black Madonna there who had been painted white, which I thought was interesting. And she used to be kept in the crypt underneath the church and only brought out several times a year for specific ritual functions. And she was from the ninth century and had many different miracles attributed to her. And as you know about the black Madonnas, they're always seated and they're always in the hieratic position. And you can often learn a lot about what their meaning by what they hold in their hands or the size of their hands and their different aspects and what they're seated on and things like that. So this particular Madonna is very interesting. And I was part of a, a global um, pilgrimage group where there were about mm, a couple of hundred women all gathering together on the same day to go and pray at different sacred sites around the world for the same people. So it was quite an intense um, experience. We each prayed for about 200 people at the same time, um, but in different locations. And so that's why I went to this particular place. And this, this virgin had been known since the Middle Ages as the breaker of chains or the breaker of irons. And um, different prisoners who'd been wrongly imprisoned or people who'd been enslaved or people who'd been abused would pray to this Madonna. And the the church um, is filled with all of the um, shackles because after their prayers had been answered, they would make pilgrimage and leave their shackles inside the church. So there are balls and chains and shackles and different, you know, different restrictive devices all over the church from those times. 
So anyway, I went to the I went to the Basilica and prayed for all these people. And then that night, um, I realized the Basilica was still open because my hotel was just directly opposite. And I realized it was a pilgrimage church that so was actually open 24 hours a day. So I went back in at night and prayed again. But this time I had more of a personal, ecstatic, mystical experience in connection with the Madonna. And then that night when I was sleeping, I dreamed about an extremely bright white light. And it was so bright that it woke me up. And it was an unearthly color. It was a kind of ice white, but it had colors that I couldn't really recognize in it. And then it formed into the shape of a woman at the end of my bed that was about eight or nine feet tall. And she had no facial features, but she was wearing some kind of cloak. But when I say formed, it was still, she was still completely made of light. So she didn't have any real distinguishing features, but I could see from her shape that she was a woman. And where her heart would be was was a, a red light that was swirling. And then she spoke and I was absolutely terrified and I was completely awake because I could feel the adrenaline going around in my body. And um, she said, people think they're coming here to see the Black Madonna, but this is what I really look like. You called me, so what do you want? And naturally, I could not even formulate a thought, let alone answer that question And her voice had this unearthly crystalline quality, like extremely high-pitched, extremely resonant. And she, she then, I couldn't answer. And I was almost kind of, I wasn't, it wasn't like sleep paralysis or anything like that, but I was so incredibly bowled over by what was happening that I literally couldn't move either. I was just hiding under the duvet. And and then she she reached out a filament of light from the center of her body and started scanning my body up and down through the center of my body. And she did that for, I would say, a couple of hours during which I was in a kind of half trance state. Um, and then as dawn was approaching, she said, what you want is the truth and the truth you shall have. And if you want to know the truth about your boyfriend, look on his phone. (laughs) And I said, no. And then she disappeared. (laughs) Damn. There's more to the story. I'll let you digest that a bit first. (laughs) I just want to jump in and say, if that was me, I would have been like, uh, and I'd be like drooling and I wouldn't be able to talk. So yeah, I do you it. think I handled it pretty well? Yeah, totally better than I would have. Oh, thank you. That, that, I appreciate that. <laughs> I thought I handled it I, well. I think I handled it pretty well, but I was terrified. I have to say, but I, I did. it's amazing though. It's amazing. It's the light power, the Virgin of Light. Yes, and what's extraordinary is that next day, I went to um, to a store in the town opposite the church. So just opposite my hotel. So pretty much on the exact same ley line, we could say as my hotel directly opposite with the church in the middle was a store. 
And I asked the man in my bad French, you know, do you know anything about, uh, about this church? Have you ever heard of any strange happenings associated with it, any strange energetic things or anything like that? I did not mention what I'd seen. And I had a witness because I had a friend with me as well who witnessed this conversation. Um, and he said, yes, me. One year ago, almost to the day, I was suicidal. I was going to kill myself. My wife had left. She'd taken the children. I was really depressed. I went into the church and I prayed. And then he said that night he went to bed, bearing in mind he was sleeping above above his shop. Um, and so I'm guessing he was sleeping above his shop because he'd been kicked out probably. Um, and his shop overlooked the basilica, but just from the different angle from my, my hotel. And he woke up, he had a dream of a white light, so bright that it woke him up. And the same thing happened. It formed into the shape of a woman. It spoke to him in a very crystalline, high-pitched voice. It took the shape to him of, of the Virgin Mary. So again, he, you know, she had this kind of cloak he could see and I think for him um, she manifested more looking like a human with more features probably because that would be less frightening for him Um, and she told him do not do what you're considering do not kill yourself because if you do this is what's going to happen and then she showed him the outcome on his children if he was going to do that and then she said to him all the reasons why his wife had left and basically what he told me is that ever since he was a child he'd been very psychic but as he became a man he shut it down because it wasn't considered macho and with shutting down his psychic ability he'd shut down his emotions too so he was quite unattainable emotionally to his wife and his family and so this manifestation of the the white lady or the virgin of light told him very practical things about don't kill yourself because if you do this will happen to your children and your wife left you because of this and this is the reason because you shut down your emotions and all of that and And then he said, you know, I've never been depressed or suicidal since and I'm not scared of anything anymore because I know she's watching over me. And he said um, him and his wife had not got back together, but he was experimenting with being more open emotionally and he was reawakening his psychic ability. And as you can imagine, I was in shock. That's a wonderful story. Firstly, it's interesting to me because of the fact that the the uh, the Madonna was painted white, um, and also that mm-hmm. you know it speaks to the fact that the saints and the spirits are interested in our mundane workings, like, you know, our our lives, making our lives better here. Because I was expecting when you were telling me that telling us that story of the 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 woman of light scanning your body that she was going to give you this revelation about the you know the reality of the universe or something. And instead she told you, I'll oh, check your boyfriend's phone. Yeah. I was shocked. Which is really funny, but it speaks to that um, interest that the saints and the spirits have in helping us. 
Yeah, and what's really interesting is is this kind of mundane information that that he received also from the same being, pretty much you know identical but manifesting in a slightly different form, but in the same location. Oh wow! So for me, that's what's extraordinary about the subject because it confirmed my own experience was not just my imagination. I mean, I knew it wasn't, but to suddenly hear someone else tell me without any prompting the exact same manifestation in the same location a year before. Absolutely. It's undeniable. Yeah, it's undeniable. Yeah. And what I believe is that these particular manifestations, and Richard believes this too, are tied to particular locations. I think that's true. It seems as though there's a there needs to be a base for the archetype to root itself in physical reality so that it can manifest on this plane. Um, and mm-hmm. though that base can be maybe artificially constructed in the form of magical temples, uh, sanctified churches, and so on and so forth, it also definitely, and even in pre-Christian antiquity, um, seems to be also associated with natural places, uh, places in nature uh, that have great power. And there's a, often a, a state of the numinous in, in those places, whether it's a sacred spring or a holy grove or, you know, a mountain peak or even, you know, in, in America, there's places like this too. You know, in the, in the, in the West especially, there's certain, certain sites, but really all over America, there's places of that nature as well. But mm-hmm. so I, I think that's really a tremendous, tremendous experience. And this is a testament for the listeners. Um, this is a testament to the, the Gnostic way of life. The, the aim is to engage with the sacred and the numinous and the divine. Um, it's an interaction. It's not a one-way, um, you know, praying to something invisible that never shows its face, but rather there's an interaction and an engagement with the holy, with the sacred, with the divine, with the mysterious and mystical um, that causes spiritual growth and development and awakening. Absolutely. And what is also, that's beautifully stated, by the way. I really, really enjoyed hearing oh, you say pleasure. that because it's yeah that's beautifully stated and what i find really again very very heartening about this story with these beings who manifest in these particular locations is their as you say their kind of interest in our human affairs almost to a ridiculous level you know <laughs> Um, I never did look on my boyfriend's phone, by the way, but I did ask him about it, and he ran away and deleted everything on his phone. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so needless to say, that didn't last much longer. Um, yeah, he'd just been in contact with his ex-girlfriend, which I already knew clairvoyantly anyway, but he kept denying it. Well, your girl had your back. So she did. <laughs> she did. Yeah, I'm a firm <laughs> believer of of the principle that you cannot get anything past a woman so don't try no and don't try with a clairvoyant Especially woman either. Not, that's really no, dumb no <laughs> really dumb agreed <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah what what i think is really you know really um amazing about these manifestations apart from the fact that they happen is there's almost an equal opportunities aspect to it you know here's a guy 
down on his luck, depressed, about to commit suicide, and she appears. And he wasn't religious at all. He, you know, he he told me he was raised Catholic, but like many people, he rejected it and wasn't remotely spiritual either. He just worked in the in the shop. Um, and I've heard stories about <clears throat> people, especially men, who have seen the White Lady of Montsegur and have been actually physically touched by her who have been criminals, who've been gangsters, who've been, you know, not very, very nice people. And yet she has appeared to them, which again makes me, you know, feel that there's this theme of of redemption. You know, the idea that the divine feminine, like Mary Magdalene, can redeem with a touch. There's something about that, I feel. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, we hate to cut this conversation short because it has been intriguing and I feel like it's gone by in five minutes. And so for that reason, um, we are going to do a second and potentially third part of this conversation uh, with your permission, Amanda. Well, gladly. And so uh, for our listeners, um, we will be reconvening and continuing this conversation. There's uh, a lot more of the mysteries that we've discussed that man, Amanda has a, as of yet to reveal and unveil. We want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. We truly appreciate it from our hearts with uh, total sincerity. And uh, we look forward to talking to you more in the future. Uh, so for the time being, where can people find you if they want to talk to you or lear- learn about what you do? Uh, where can they get in touch with you? Where, they, where can they find you? Well, at the moment, uh, my website's still being built, but they can find me on Facebook, uh, Amanda Mariamne Radcliffe. Wonderful. And um, I do encourage people to, um, you know, if, if you if you are interested, please do check her stuff out. There's a, it, it's very interesting. And also, I want to say again, Dominic and I have mentioned before, it's very important to us to give a voice to um, the female female spiritual leaders and mystics on our show. It's something that we feel is somewhat neglected. And I definitely feel like the work that you're doing is essential for our age and important, as you know, you know. And um, I also think that here in the flesh, we have a living, we have an expression of lived gnosis. And that is kind of the cornerstone of what our show is about in the end is is living gnosis. The, there is a spiritual world, there is an interior realm, and there is a human potential for more than just the meat and the potatoes and the gravel. There's something more than that. And if you open yourself and release yourself from preconceptions, it is possible to engage with this realm and awaken the soul of light within you. So, yes, thank you very much, Amanda, for coming on. And we definitely look forward to talking to you again. Thank you both so much. I I feel like we're only just beginning. And I hope you can make some sense out of all that ramble. (laughs) Yes, we will. Okay, that concludes our interview with Amanda Radcliffe. This is part one of a two-part interview. 
we had a lot of material to cover with her. So we decided to do this in uh, two segments. There's a few other of our guests as well that we've been planning to have for a second portion to the conversation. We covered a lot of ground and laid the seeds to explore things even more deeply next time around. One of the most interesting points in this interview for me was our beginning of the discussion of the uh, white lady and the uh, black Madonna. Yeah, and and we can go in all sorts of different directions with that um, in the next round. Um, I think it was valuable talking to Amanda because she is so sincere and passionate about her practice. and, And in this case, we got to see an interesting angle from someone who practices modern day Gnosticism, but she is steeped in tradition where she lives, as I mentioned in the interview a few times that she lives in the middle of Cathar country. I mean, she lives in the town that is known for the most iconic Cathar stronghold in history. So just that fact alone, being in that proximity with with those kind of historical sites, they reinforce very strongly, I believe, her practice and her beliefs. And so uh, it just adds an extra dimension to that practice, and it makes her story more interesting in my eyes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think that, one, you know, it's it's also lines up well with one of the goals of our show, which is to show how these things are lived, how these things are understood in a lived way. It is valuable to us to inspect scholarly conclusions. However, it's also important for us to then work from those premises into what it looks like to live uh, according to these conclusions. And I think that she's an excellent example of that. Yeah, and I don't expect everyone to agree with everything that we talked about. I mean, it's, it is and has been a controversial topic, this whole bloodline narrative and this whole bloodline uh, perspective. And, you know, it's interesting to explore. There's all, I think there's always going to be some truth found somewhere in the middle between the two sides. And she's got a front row seat to this phenomenon. So I think it's, it's really cool to get kind of that uh, insider's perspective on that. If folks aren't familiar with all of this stuff that we've been talking about, as far as the bloodline topic, there was this phenomenon in the, I don't know, when was that book written? Was it the 70s, 80s? I think it was the late 70s, early 80s. And it created a real craze. And it was, of course, the the catalyst and the inspiration for the whole Dan Brown uh, series of novels about, uh, I, I haven't seen the movies or the, read the books, but they increased the awareness and the interest in uh, present day. So, and, and it's controversial, but it's worth looking at. Yeah, and the thing is, you should educate yourself. You know, always educate yourself in whatever direction you can. Yes. Okay. So I think we're good for that, and we're looking forward to the next episode with Amanda. She's got a lot to say, and we had a lot that we didn't even get to touch on. But I think it's time now that we move on to our book review segment. And we're going to kind of try to keep this outro on the shorter side this time. I am going to review a book that I read fairly recently. And 
I honestly can't believe it took me so long to read this because I've known about it forever. And I know that you've read it, uh, you know, years and years ago. I would recommend you reread it, honestly. It's, it's that good. And I think you're going to gain some new insights from it. But the book is called Jesus the Magician by Morton Smith. Okay, so I found the book extremely fascinating, uh, a lot of intriguing ideas. It paints a picture of Jesus as being a traveling magician, and it compares and contrasts him with other figures of the day that were known magicians and holy men and miracle workers, such as uh, Apollonius, Simon Magus, and others. Um, He makes direct parallels with what's found in the Greek magical papyri. He goes through all of Jesus's miracles found in the New Testament, and he finds parallels to those miracles in the PGM and helps explain the context and the perspective of Jesus um, from the point of view as being that magician character. It's really an amazing work, in my opinion, and I could not uh, put it down, honestly. I think anyone who's interested in first century Christianity, Gnosticism, um, the Greek magical papyri, uh, early magical practice, um, will find it to be a a really valuable study to help flesh out and uh, create some real context for that period and for Jesus himself and Christianity. Yeah, well said, well said. I I couldn't agree more. It's just useful for anyone who is in a magical paradigm and is open to the idea that Jesus may be a magician. So, yeah, thanks a lot, Dom. Yeah, my pleasure. I would highly recommend um, anyone interested in these topics to check it out. Um, It won't hurt, that's for sure. Um, And even if you're not interested in Christianity per se, it does paint a picture of what a magician of the day would have looked like. Of course, this he's not just any magician, but it does help you uh, really more clearly look at that, at that time period and those practices. So that concludes the book review, Jesus and the Magician by Morton Smith. And now I think we're going to wrap it up for this episode, unless you have anything else you'd like to add. No, just uh, that we're grateful to our guests, as we're grateful to all of our guests. We're grateful to all the listeners that we have. And we want to thank everyone for staying strong in this strange time. Yes, absolutely. And you can follow us on Facebook, not on Twitter, on YouTube, and find us on iTunes and all of the places that you find podcasts. And we would always appreciate a review or a what else do people do on those things <laughs> a rating or a review and feel free to reach out to us as well so we have forgotten to mention our email address associated with the show it's synthamata at gmail.com feel free to uh, like i said reach out with any questions comments critiques that's fine we're always interested in hearing from our audience yes definitely all right well that's it for this episode everybody and we'll see you uh next time <laughs>